Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. And this is part one of a two-part series. This episode will include crimes committed against children, so listener discretion is advised. Before we get into the episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The native peoples of the area known as Yosemite National Park lived within its splendor for thousands of years. Known as the Awanichi, their name in their language means dwellers. However, due to their prowess as fierce warriors, they were called Yosemite, or those who kill, by neighboring tribes who feared their legendary fighting abilities. Despite being fierce warriors, they strove for peace and traded with all their native neighbors and strived to live in harmony with nature and others. The overall number of Native Americans in the area was around 300,000, and then gold was discovered in the Sierra Nevada mountains. An influx of prospectors, soldiers, and families quickly encroached on the Awahechi land, and after losing land, game, and being weakened by disease, the native tribes fought back in what became known as the Mariposa War. By the end of the war, the 90,000 new settlers to the area had caused a massive decline in the native population, and of the estimated 3,000 that existed around 1800, their numbers fell to around 50,000 by the end of the gold rush. When an American army officer first saw Yosemite Valley, he fell in love with the beauty. He asked what the native word for those who lived in the area was, and he told they were called the Yosemite. This was common for white settlers to ask about other tribes and be given tribal nicknames, sometimes even derogatory ones. Instead of asking the tribe what they called themselves, the settlers would go off the nickname from a rival tribe instead. After the gold rush, settlers to the area started to visit Yosemite for its natural beauty, and people started to recognize it needed to be protected. In 1864, despite the country being in the midst of a bloody civil war, money was set aside by Congress as a grant to purchase and protect the land of Yosemite. While it didn't designate it a national park at the time, the process paved the way for Yellowstone's similar fate and eventually Yellowstone status as the first national park. Yosemite was given to the state of California as a state park. 26 years after money was set aside to preserve Yosemite, It had taken some time to buy out and remove the settlers who had set up homes and ranches in the park, and all that remained was a licensed store. Despite being procured with federal funds, California refused to give up the land while President Teddy Roosevelt spent three days in the park in 1903. He convinced Congress to force California to give up the land in 1906, and after 42 long years, Yosemite was officially a national park. The National Park Service committed many atrocities against the remaining Awanachi people and eventually drove them out of the park in the 1960s. In just over a hundred years, the proud people lost their beautiful valley, and while that allows millions of people to enjoy the park each year, that enjoyment came at a great cost. In 1999, the decapitated body of a 26-year-old naturalist would bring another dark story to the fabled park, but our story begins 26 years earlier with the abduction of a seven-year-old boy in a city 70 miles from Yosemite. This is the tale of two brothers. 
Merced, California was a somewhat quiet town of just over 20,000 people in 1972. Located along a string of towns between Sacramento and Fresno, it is the largest town outside the entrance to Yosemite National Park. While Northern California was experiencing its fair share of serial killer terror in the early 1970s, the smaller towns away from the coast were considered relatively safe and seemed to escape most of the carnage of the larger cities. It's possible the lower populations made for less targets and less people to hide amongst, and therefore the killers tended to hunt in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and along the busier interstate highways. But escaping crime altogether is impossible, and the worst crimes can also hit smaller towns. On the afternoon of December 4th, 1972, seven-year-old Stephen Stainer was walking home from school when he was approached by a man named Erwin Murphy. Erwin was passing out religious pamphlets to children and had done so at the request of his acquaintance, Kenneth Parnell. Erwin and Kenneth had met while working together at a resort in Yosemite National Park, and Kenneth had convinced the simple-minded Erwin that he was an aspiring minister and wanted to convert young boys to a more religious lifestyle. Kenneth had been so convincing that Erwin had agreed to help Kenneth kidnap a young boy so that Kenneth could raise him under God's inspiration. Erwin wanted to help out his friend, and on that fateful day, he isolated Stephen and asked him if he thought his parents would be willing to donate anything to raise money for Erwin's church. Stephen, likely letting his guard down because he felt the man was with a church and therefore he was safe, agreed to show the man where his house was. Erwin got the attention of Kenneth, who had been parked nearby in a white Buick, and Kenneth drove up and Erwin and Stephen got into the car. It didn't take long for Stephen to realize they were driving the wrong way, and eventually Kenneth drove the scared and confused boy to an isolated cabin in a nearby valley. Unbeknownst to Stephen or the men, the cabin was only a quarter mile from Stephen's grandfather's house. Kenneth told Stephen that his family had asked Erwin and Kenneth to bring him to the cabin because they couldn't afford to raise him anymore. Stephen was the middle child of his parents' five children and had an older brother and sister and two younger sisters. Stephen asked to be brought home, but was told again and again that his parents had too many children and they didn't have enough money. Kenneth molested Stephen that first night, and two weeks later he sexually assaulted him for the first time. Stephen continued to beg to be brought home, and he was told that Kenneth had legally adopted him and his parents didn't want him anymore, so he wasn't going home. Kenneth even pretended to talk to Stephen's mother on the phone in front of Stephen to make it appear as if they were having a conversation about her not wanting Stephen and her giving permission to Kenneth to adopt Stephen. After months of abuse and imprisonment, Kenneth convinced Stephen that his name was Dennis, and he couldn't leave him because he was his father, and he had no other family. They moved out of the area, and Kenneth enrolled him in various schools as Dennis, and changed Stephen's date of birth to ensure no one was able to connect him to the missing boy out of Merced, California. Kenneth had changed Stephen's haircut and hair color in further efforts to hide the kidnap victim in plain sight. So this is going to be the part of the story that becomes somewhat difficult for people to comprehend. But the one thing that's important to remember here is we're going back 50 years in time. This is pre-internet, pre-stranger danger, pre-24-hour news cycle. I wouldn't say that it's a a time of innocence because as I mentioned, we've cut a lot of terrible crimes being committed in, in California at this time in history. But when it came to this type of a crime, I think law enforcement, parents, kids, everybody was naive to the true danger that existed in 
society when it came to this. And then you've got this seven-year-old kid, and you know, seven years old, you're on the cusp of understanding things, and but at the same time, you don't have a grasp of the entire world. So while you're old enough to figure some things out, you're also old enough to have things taught to you that seem to make sense. So in Stephen's case, he's being told his parents can't afford him anymore. They don't want him anymore. And then as a kid, you know, you're taught to trust and believe adults. So here's this adult that has taken you, and now he's having what you believe to be phone conversations with your mother confirming that he's not wanted anymore by his family and, and this is going to be his new life. So while some people you know, struggle to comprehend how a kid can be taken off the street and within months he's understanding that the situation that he's in is is going to be his life and he's even getting sent off to school and a lot of people question well why wouldn't he bring this up to a teacher or an administrator at the school well one what's happening to him in this home is obviously terrible and he's going to feel whether it be embarrassment, guilt, shame, anything like that. So he's not likely going to speak to teachers about what's happening to him. And secondly, he has to fear that what Kenneth is telling him is true. And so what is the end game if he tells teachers he was kidnapped and taken by this man, and then they turn around and find out, no, in fact, he's supposed to be with this guy. Stephen has to fear what the repercussions are. So as almost unbelievable as it could be that that somebody could kidnap somebody and within months have them brainwashed and able to send them off to school where they're not raising the alarm uh, again it's i think it's part of it is the time period and i think part of it is the age of steven when he was abducted with steven's transition to dennis complete kenneth let the boy drink alcohol smoke cigarettes and come and go from the house whenever he wanted and when Stephen wanted a puppy, Kenneth bought him one to create another level of dependence, as he figured Stephen wouldn't leave or act out if he had to fear losing his dog. And Kenneth did not have a formal education, so he worked minimum wage dead-end jobs. He was born on September 26, 1931 in Texas during the heart of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. His father left the family when he was six, and he, his mother, and his mother's three children from a different marriage moved to California where his mother operated a boarding lodge. It was at the boarding lodge that it is reported that Kenneth was sexually abused at age 13 by male boarders that would stay at the residence. When he was 20 years old, he was arrested for abducting a young boy after posing as a police officer using a badge he had purchased at the surplus store. The boy was sexually assaulted by Kenneth, and he would receive four years in prison after being convicted of his crimes. Six years after getting out of prison, Kenneth was arrested for armed robbery in Utah and spent six more years in prison. And it was not long after he was released from prison the second time that he concocted the plan to abduct a young boy to keep as his slave. Kenneth treated Stephen with a common cycle of abuse, often beating him at or sexually assaulting him and then trying to spoil him out of remorse and to ensure he didn't run away. This pattern and the fear of not having a family that wanted him prevented him from trying to get away from his situation. As the years passed, Stephen's family and law enforcement continued to look for the boy that disappeared into thin air off the streets of Merced. Stephen's parents even refused to get rid of the 1972 Christmas presents they had purchased for Stephen, and those gifts sat unopened for years. Stephen's father, Dell, stated that he had always felt that Stephen was alive, and he looked for his son's face in any crowd of people he saw. 
As I mentioned, in an age well before personal computers, let alone the internet, police departments resorted to mailing missing children bulletins to local schools. While several schools did receive Stephen's missing child bulletin, sadly the schools he attended did not. And at this point, Kenneth had moved Stephen pretty far away. They were in a different part of California because I don't think Kenneth feared Stephen leaving the home and, and going and telling police or the teachers what was going on but I have to imagine there was some level of fear that at some point somebody might identify Stephen even with the changes that were made to his appearance uh, he still it seems to be there's just letting him wander letting him go to school letting him do all this kind of stuff it was there was such an inherent risk with somebody seeing him and somehow that managed to not happen for seven long years and those years went by as Stephen endured sexual abuse and psychological torture at the hands of Kenneth eventually Stephen hit puberty and his transition from a boy to a young man made him less attractive to Kenneth while this meant Stephen was subjected to less sexual assaults it created a whole new nightmare as Kenneth wanted Stephen to help him abduct a new young boy Kenneth tried to employ a similar strategy with Stephen as he had with Irwin, but Stephen purposely sabotaged every attempt because he did not want to be part of destroying a young boy's life. He knew what would happen to any young boy who ended up with Kenneth. And so this is actually something Stephen would say later, that he was purposely sabotaging these attempts. And while it never said that Kenneth caught on to this, it said that Kenneth eventually got frustrated and told Stephen that he was worthless or something along those lines i have to imagine to a certain degree kenneth understood that stephen wasn't going to be a willing participant in this but you know i, I give stephen a lot of credit for taking a risk because he had to at some point too know that nobody really knows that he's still alive yes even if his parents didn't quote-unquote want him and had kenneth take him he didn't really exist as Stephen Stainer anymore. He was this new person. So if Kenneth wanted to, he could have killed Stephen and nobody would have known to be looking for him to a certain degree. He could have just claimed that they moved and changed schools again because they did change schools often. So you know, Stephen was taking quite a risk by sabotaging this uh, attempt, but you know we're going to give Stephen a lot of credit here and in the future for the action that he's taking to try to protect others when it became apparent to kenneth that his plan to use Stephen wasn't going to work he came up with a new plan and approached a teenage friend of Stephen named randall poorman a 14 year old boy and kenneth wanted him to help him abduct a young boy kenneth promised randall booze marijuana and 50 dollars which is roughly 200 dollars today if he would help him lure a small boy into his car on February 14, 1980, Kenneth and Randall located five-year-old Timothy Timmy White walking in Ukiah, California. The man and teenager tried to lure the boy into the car, pretending they needed help, but Timmy got scared and started running away. Randall gave chase and caught up to the boy as the boy ran into a chain-link fence. Randall pried the boy's fingers from the fence and carried him to Kenneth's car and held him as they drove back to Kenneth's place. Timmy's parents called the police when they realized their son hadn't made it home. No one had witnessed the abduction, so once again, a young boy had disappeared into thin air. Kenneth wasted no time cutting Timmy's hair and dyeing it, and he started telling Timmy the same thing Stephen had heard seven years earlier. 
The difference was this time Stephen knew Kenneth was lying. He was aware of Kenneth's plans to abduct a young boy, and it had nothing to do with the boy's parents not being able to afford him. Stephen, listening to the same lies that had filled his head when he was seven years old, knew what type of terrible future lay ahead for five-year-old Timmy. And two weeks into Timmy's captivity, Stephen made a choice. He decided he was going to help Timmy escape and get back to his parents. While many would believe that Stephen was also choosing to escape, he would later admit he really didn't think about it as an escape for him, and he didn't realize the end result could be his freedom. With Kenneth gone at work, Stephen took Timmy outside the small cabin they were staying in, and the two of them hitchhiked 40 miles in the dark of night to get Timmy back to his parents in Ukiah. Stephen and Timmy later recalled how the tired and terrified Timmy cried as rain was falling in the pitch black night, and Stephen carried Timmy at times as the young boy desperately tried to find his home in the small town. They were able to find Timmy's babysitter's house, but no one was home, and eventually Stephen used a phone book to look up the address for the police station, and he held Timmy's hand as they walked towards the police station. As a testament to the truth that the escape was all about Timmy, Stephen told Timmy when they got to the police station that Timmy should walk inside and tell the police officers who he was and they would take care of him. Stephen had not planned on escaping, and it was only because Timmy came back crying to Stephen that a police officer noticed the two boys outside the station at midnight and approached them and asked what was going on. So this is what I'm talking about in, in the fact that it really didn't appear that this escape had anything to do with Stephen's desire to get out of his situation. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't want to, you know, whether it's the Stockholm Syndrome or he had just convinced himself after seven, almost eight years that what he had been told by Kenneth was true, that his family didn't want him. And so him escaping would merely just be running away at that point. He really technically didn't have a place to go. And, and here he is outside of a police station with Timmy telling Timmy to go in and talk to a police officer. And Stephen had planned on going back to this cabin, back to Kenneth's place. And you know, that's more frightening than anything is the fact that Stephen felt his situation was so hopeless that he was going to help Timmy out, but then return. And who knows what would have happened to him if Kenneth came back and found that Stephen had helped Timmy escape. Now, Timmy can't even find his own house in the town that he lived in because he's only five years old. So any thought of, well, even if Stephen had to have known that if Timmy talked to the police officer, the police officer would figure out where Kenneth was. No, I mean, had Timmy talked to a police officer, he probably would have been reunited with his family. He may have been able to describe this guy, but they were over 40 miles away at this cabin and they hitchhiked to get here to a town that, as I said, Timmy couldn't even find his own house in. So how is Timmy likely going to direct police officers to Kenneth's place? I don't think that's very likely. So... If Stephen doesn't talk to anybody that evening, doesn't go into the police department himself, there's little chance that Stephen is going to be rescued. Stephen probably would have hitchhiked back to Kenneth's and faced whatever consequences, which probably at that point could have included Kenneth murdering him, because now not only had Stephen interfered with getting several children, which caused him to actually have to use this Randall guy, but now he would have been instrumental in taking away the one child that he had made such an effort to get so it's very likely had timmy walked into that police station that night and steven turned around and hitchhiked back that steven 
likely would have been murdered by Kenneth, and nobody would have known to this day whatever happened to Stephen Stainer. Now, Timmy might have been able to tell police officers that he was with, and who knows if Stephen used his real name or, or Dennis's name, but he was you know, with this other boy, and maybe he knew that Stephen had been with, with Kenneth for a while, but I just don't see a, a scenario in which if Stephen is killed by Kenneth that next morning, that anybody's going to really be able to figure out what happened to Stephen Stainer. And while the police officer recognized Timmy as the boy abducted two weeks earlier, Stephen couldn't quite come up with the right story about how he came to walk Timmy to the police station. The officer had a strong feeling there was more to the 14-year-old boy that had rescued Timmy, and he had Stephen come into the police station with him. So again, even when the police officer is right there, and he recognizes that Timmy's this abducted child now granted the police officers automatically gonna probably first assume that Stephen might have had something to do with the abduction and and somehow was bringing this child back I mean it's likely far from the officer's mind that he's looking at two kidnapped victims here but Stephen had never planned on speaking to the police so he didn't have a story concocted in his mind about how he would suddenly have come in contact with Timmy and known that Timmy was missing, that he had been abducted, and getting him back to the police station. So this caught Stephen off guard, and it was there that Stephen, who had gone by Dennis for seven years, told the police officer that his name was Stephen, and he believed his last name was Stainer. He told the officers about being abducted by Kenneth and Irwin seven years prior in Merced, and how he'd been held captive for seven years. On March 2nd, the morning after the boys' escape, Kenneth Parnell was arrested for the kidnapping of both boys. Erwin Murphy was also located and arrested for his part in abducting Stephen, and 14-year-old Randall Poorman was also arrested for his part in abducting Timmy. Randall Poorman was adjudicated delinquent. Uh, as he was tried as a juvenile, so there was not going to be an adult conviction, and he was sentenced to serve time in a juvenile facility for his crime. He would later apologize to Timmy when they were both adults, and Timmy accepted his apology. Erwin Murphy claimed to the courts that he knew nothing of the sexual nature of the abduction and believed Kenneth was truly a religious man who was trying to help the boy. Stephen would later state that Erwin was always kind to him, and Stephen genuinely believed that Erwin was unaware of the true heinous intent of the abduction. Despite his claims of ignorance, Erwin was sentenced to five years in prison and served two of them before being released. Kenneth went on trial in 1981 and was convicted of both kidnappings. Due to extremely lenient laws at the time, Kenneth received two seven-year sentences for the kidnappings, but under the law, they were to be served concurrently, meaning at the same time. So Kenneth would actually only serve five years for kidnapping two boys, including one victim that he sexually abused for seven years. The lenient sentence enraged the public and led to the passage of stricter sentencing laws in the state of California. Outrageously, Kenneth was never charged with any of the sexual assaults for two reasons. First, the prosecutors in Merced County, who were in charge of the abduction conviction, could not bring charges for any of the sexual assaults in their county because they occurred seven years prior and they were outside the current statute of limitations. This was the late 1970s California and prosecutors in the Golden State Killer investigation ran into the same issue. So if you remember, if you've listened to my coverage on the Golden State Killer, it was one of the most frustrating aspects of that case is pre-DNA, there was a really short statute of limitations on sexual assault. And 
this was done, I guess, for a couple of reasons. I mean, I guess statute of limitations was a way for departments, prosecutors, however you want to look at it, to get old cases kind of shoved aside. Basically, if they hadn't been solved in a certain amount of time, they probably weren't going to be solved. And pre-DNA, the likelihood that you would get a sexual assault conviction, which a lot of the times in those days were a he said, she said situation, the idea that you're going to convince a jury years down the road of something that's going to be basically just testimony between two people was not, I guess, something that they were willing to deal with. And so they had these really short statute of limitations for sexual assault cases. Now, thankfully, today we don't have that when it comes to person's crimes, thanks to DNA, the fact that we can identify a, a sexual assault suspect decades after they commit their crime. We have much better laws now, but basically Merced County, I think they would have charged out the sexual assaults, but Kenneth moved Stephen out of Merced County pretty early on. So while there were sexual assaults that occurred while they were in that county, they were outside of those statute of limitations. And then some of the sexual assaults had obviously occurred within these statute of limitations, but they occurred outside Merced County and fell under the jurisdiction of Mendocino County, where Timmy had been abducted. But prosecutors there claimed they didn't want to put Stephen through the tribulations that would come with being the child victim of sexual assault and opted to not charge Kenneth with any sex crimes against either boy. So while I see, I guess, what the prosecutors were trying to do here, having Stephen's terrible uh, victimization be put out there for the entire world to see in this trial and then to have to have him potentially relive it and testify to these sexual assaults because again it's going to come down to at this point mostly testimony evidence I can see where they're coming from that they didn't want to charge him but at the same time them knowing that if he doesn't get charged he's only going to spend roughly you know six years in prison unless there was some agreement on steven's part or steven's family's part to not go after him for the sexual assault charges i I just can't fathom the idea that somebody could do what kenneth did and serve so little time and kenneth's lenient sentence meant he was released from prison in 1986 just six years after the brave escape of Stephen and Timmy. And not much is known about Kenneth's life between 1986 and 2002, but in January of 2003, he was arrested after trying to convince someone to abduct a child for him. At this point, he was 71 years old, and Kenneth suffered from numerous health ailments and complications from a stroke that he had suffered. While being cared for 24 hours a day by a home health nurse, he propositioned his caregiver's sister to abduct a young boy for him, Kenneth told the woman, Diane Stevens, that he would give her $500 if she brought him a four-year-old boy. Diane knew how evil Kenneth was, and without any hesitation, she reported the request to the local police. As the proposition hadn't been recorded, police wanted audio proof and requested Diane confirm Kenneth's request, this time while being recorded. So yeah, a couple things here. If you're Diane Stevens, if you're this woman, of course, if your sister is providing care to a pretty famous person for being absolutely vile. I can't even imagine trying to keep a straight face when this guy is propositioning me to steal a four-year-old child for him. 
So I don't even know how she managed that unless she knew as soon as he said something, she was going to try to get him charged. But on the other side of this, with I can definitely see where the police are coming from, is there's unfortunately too many people out there that are looking for their five seconds, five minutes of fame. And because there's this connection between Diane, with the fact that her sister is providing care to this guy, if this woman wants to sell her story to news outlets or reporters or whatever it might be, it's not hard to believe somebody might concoct a story like this and sensationalize it to try to make, again, make them this this five minutes of fame, make them some quick cash. Uh, so clearly the, the police want this to be somewhat of an organic audio recording, see if she can get Kenneth to bring this up again and uh, get it audio recorded so that he can't claim stuff was taken out of context or again that becomes a he said she said and kenneth was caught asking for a child and a clean birth certificate for the child in which he would pay 500 dollars. kenneth demanded that the child have a clean rectum an indication the child was going to be sexually abused police arrested kenneth and he told investigators that he only wanted a child so he could feel like he had a family again However, a search of his residence revealed items of a sexual nature that indicated that along with his request for the child to have a clean rectum, Kenneth's intention was to procure the child for sex. Kenneth went to trial one year later and was convicted of his charges, and under California's three strikes rules, he was sentenced to life in prison. He remained incarcerated until his death from natural causes in 2008. And so this is actually, it was going to be during this trial, they had... Timmy and I believe they had Randall the the teenage boy that she that Kenneth had help kidnap Timmy the prosecutors wanted them at this trial because they wanted to tell the jury about how Kenneth had solicited Randall with money to help him get a five-year-old boy who was Timmy so they wanted to make it very clear that Kenneth had a history of this and that there was going to be a likely plan by Kenneth to use this child for sexual assaults. And the way I read it in the one article is that Randall didn't know that Timmy was going to be there. And so, and this was the first time they had seen each other, at least this is what this article said, since either Randall's trial or one of the previous trials, I can't remember. And Randall you know, kind of freaked out because here's this the adult version of this five-year-old boy that he helped kidnap so that Kenneth would have this, not to be too morbid, but have this young boy for sex. And so it was said that, uh, again, you know, Randall's kind of freaking out a bit, but Timmy, it said, was really kind of took Randall aside and and Randall apologized and Timmy forgave him for for everything you know as as he's grown up he came to understand more and more and that people make mistakes and and Randall maybe didn't fully understand what he was getting himself into so they were able to have kind of this moment of of forgiveness and, and moving past the horrible abduction of Timmy we're going to go back now to 1980, and Timmy and Stephen were reunited with their families the day that Kenneth was arrested. Timmy's reunion was heartfelt and took some adjusting for the family, but Timmy made a full recovery and even became a L.A. County Sheriff's Deputy in 2005. 
He gave lectures to children about the dangers of kidnapping and married and had two children. Sadly, Timmy White died of a pulmonary embolism in 2010, and he was only 35 years old. Stephen's return to his family was much more difficult. While his family was overjoyed that their loved one had returned, he had left a young boy and returned a young man with years of traumatic experiences. He had spent seven years drinking, smoking, and going out whenever he wanted, and his parents did not want him to drink or smoke, and he had understandably strict rules about him going out. Stephen would later claim he felt as if they treated him as if he was still the fragile seven-year-old that was taken from them, and meanwhile he just wanted to be treated like a normal teenager. He later said his father never hugged him, which could be the ultimate sign of the confusion the family had about how to support Stephen. They also struggled with the idea that Stephen could have come home but didn't. So again, Timmy's return to his family, understandably it's a lot easier than what Stephen's going to go through. Uh, Stephen's parents, they hung on to this idea, you know, kind of frozen in time, that their child was this seven-year-old boy. And I think it would be hard for parents of a missing child to age that child as the years go by. I'm not saying that they can't think of it saying, oh, well, he'd be 10 years old right now. He'd be 11 years old right now. I just mean the actual idea of if he's still alive, you know, what is he doing? How much bigger has he gotten? All that kind of stuff. In their mind, they still hold on to this this last image, the last time they saw him. And so all of a sudden they're reunited and he's seven, almost eight years older. So they're going to treat him like this fragile seven-year-old that got abducted and taken from them once. And meanwhile, you know, he's survived terrible things. He's gotten used to this life of smoking and drinking, doing whatever the heck he wanted. So he goes from one situation where you would argue he's obviously not free because he's taken captive and terrible things are done to him but then when he gets quote-unquote freed from that he's now into a situation where he can't do what he wants and he's got strict rules and so he almost gives up you know one albeit much more terrible situation for another situation which is an ideal for everything that he went through and and again i mentioned this is 1980 i don't think we have as good of a grasp on the psychology of traumatic events of things like PTSD, counseling, support groups, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the fact that his father never hugged him, was it that his father was afraid that a, a grown man hugging him would bring back these terrible feelings of what happened to him from Kenneth, but at the same time Stephen just wanted a hug from his dad, so his communication isn't there. And then again, now the family's finding out that Stephen wasn't locked away in some basement or in some shed or some dungeon for for the last seven years. He was going to school and he was staying home alone. He, he eventually was able to escape and he didn't even really try to escape for himself. And the family has to think all the times that we wished and prayed and, and hoped and, and cried and all this kind of stuff, just wanting this our boy to come back. He was out there the whole time, not even trying to get back to us. So a lot of different emotional dynamics going on when Stephen comes back to his family. And his struggles weren't limited to his family life. His peers often can be. Kids at his school treated him differently. 
some made fun of him for being molested by an older man and others avoided him and he eventually dropped out of school and started drinking and smoking and when then according to one article he was kicked out of the family home which just boggled my mind is i've got three boys i can't imagine any of them going through this but i can't imagine any of them going through this then coming back to my life later and then me kicking them out so I don't know if that's exactly how it was or, or and being kicked out of the family home maybe he was 18 and and he just wanted to go so I won't put too much weight into it but it just it, it obviously we people picture this the reunification of of somebody into a family and and it just being all happiness and holidays and family dinners and all that kind of stuff and and this was a real struggle unfortunately for Stephen. But eventually, Stephen would meet a woman named Jody. When Stephen turned 20 in 1985, the pair married and welcomed two children. Four years into the marriage, his wife said Stephen still had his struggles, but he was doing better and seemed to be on a good track. Stephen, like Timmy would later do, liked to talk to children about the dangers of strangers and how to stay safe. Just like when he saved Timmy, he felt purpose in protecting others. He also assisted with a movie about his ordeal that aired on TV in 1989 called I Know My First Name is Stephen. Tragically, Stephen's life would also be cut short when he was killed in a hit-and-run accident while riding his motorcycle home from work in September of 1989. He was only 24 years old. While the story of Stephen Stainer gave a lot of other parents of missing children a certain level of hope, and there are many other cases of long-term abductions with the children surviving and returning home, this story has another tragic angle. Less than 10 years after Stephen Stainer's tragic death, a series of murders in and around Yosemite Park was going to add another dark chapter to the story. In part two, we will cover the murder of four known victims and five possible victims of someone very close to Stephen. So we'll follow up with part two tomorrow. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.